0: On this edition of Mind Matters News, we listen to an interview with Robert J. Marks on the podcast Philosophy for the People. The host is Pat Flynn. Let's listen in. Okay, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. I am joined today by Dr. Robert J. Marks, and we're going to talk about whether or not you are a computer. <laughs> uh AI has kind of exploded recently. I mean, it's it's been talked about for a long time, but it seems like there's just been this incredible leap forward, especially when it comes to chatbots. And uh, Dr. Marks, I had some recent AI images of myself generated. I should have brought them on for the conversation because some of them were pretty good and some of them were Crazy off the so, mark. Um, how,
1: did, how did you get AI images of yourself? You, what, so what there is, is there
0: is a new app, if anybody is interested, and I can upload one as we're talking here. Um, it's called Lenza. And what you do is you upload about 10 to 20 selfies of yourself. In fact, if you see the background, one of them is there. If you see right above my head, that is an image of me that was generated <laughs> that- by this app.
1: Wait a second. I see in the upper right, I think a picture of Aristotle or Plato. Go to the other side.
0: Go to the other side. It's more in the background.
1: Okay. You see the, other the glasses side.
0: up there? Oh, yes, I do.
1: I do. Okay. That is
0: from that app. You upload 10 to 20 selfies and then the AI, you know, works its AI thing on those images and spits out however many images you're willing to pay for. It's a paid app, so it's not free, you know, 100 uh-huh. or, or 200 and... Uh, some of them are, I have to say, some of them were pretty impressive. Some of them were like, okay, I don't know how this came about. But, anyways, point being, it seems like with the chat bots and AI art and AI music, people have been paying a lot more attention to AI. So I thought now's a great time to have a conversation about this. And Dr. Marks is the resident expert. He's got a book out, a great book called Non-Computable You. And, and you read of- it, right? Or yes? you read part
1: of it. Yeah. yeah I did.
0: Hey, yeah. And cool. I, you know, I, I forgot how I discovered it. Uh, but I I discovered it independently of our mutual associates. And then I realized we had mutual associates. I'm like, hook me up with Dr. Marks. I want to talk to him. <laughs> this is a good uh, okay. book. That's so I'm great. sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Dr. Marks, if you wouldn't mind, give us a little bit of background about yourself. You know, who are you? What do you do? And what got you interested in all these kind of wider, you know, really philosophical debates about the human person and AI and all that?
1: Well, I, I've been I've been involved in artificial intelligence for over 30 years. So I've been publishing and I still publish in the area, you know, go out and archival uh, peer reviewed journals. And I, I finally decided that there's so much going on right now with the hype associated with artificial intelligence, the idea that artificial intelligence is going to take over like it did in the Terminator movie or it's going to um, take over like in The Matrix, and we're all going to be lying in bathtubs full of goo with with wires connected to us. And I wanted to do pushbacks on that. It turns out that artificial intelligence is incredible, and I don't want to diminish the things that artificial intelligence can do because they can do remarkable things. Mm -hmm. However, um, there are certain brick walls that artificial intelligence will never go through in terms of duplicating what humans do. And there's a lot of proponents of this. We have people like Ray Kurzweil in his book *The Singularity*. He wants to come out and do. Um, well, he believes that, okay, that humans have evolved to the point where we can't evolve anymore. So we have to we have to switch modalities. So in order for uh, in order for humans to evolve to the next stage, we have to go to silicon. And sure. we have to program ourselves in silicon. And then we are going to have AI that writes better AI, that writes better AI, reaching something which is called artificial general intelligence. That's going to keep on and eventually become a super intelligence, which is going to dwarf us all intellectually and make us all slaves and pets and things of that we've sort. we've seen
0: the Terminator, right. Mm-hmm yeah
1: exactly. So I wanted to push back against that because this is science fiction, and it is so far from some of the things that are presented in both philosophy and computer science that uh, show again that there are certain aspects of artificial intelligence that uh, will never be accomplished, never be accomplished by artificial intelligence. so uh, humans humans are fearfully and wonderfully made, and we are uh, we we celebrate, uh, the idea of exceptionalism in these certain areas. Mm. Now, there are certain things computers do that that uh, they do a lot better than we do. I think they yep. can add numbers, multiply numbers a lot better. Better than, than I can, that's for sure. Be, better than I can. Uh, uh, so, yeah, it's not saying that uh, everything uh, can't be done better by a computer, but as far as duplicating certain aspects of human beings, I, I would say, for example, the simple emotions, love, empathy, hope. Faith; these are things which will never be duplicated by humans. But if you drill down deeper, there are there are aspects. Uh, creativity. Uh, there is um, uh, understanding. Computers will never understand what they do. They can add the numbers three and six, but they don't understand what the numbers three and six are. Right. And they will never be sentient. You have to define these terms, by the way, before you can talk about them, because people use seductive semantics and they go in with these fuzzily defined terms and well yeah. if if you if you have a term which is defined defined in a fuzzy way you can kind of make any case that you want so I'm like big intelligence bigger.
0: and like creativity right I,
1: exactly exactly mm-hmm. yeah i think kurzweil says you know in certain certain year where uh, computers are going to be a million times i forget exactly what the figure is but they're going to be a million times um, more intelligent than human beings well how the heck do you measure that i mean what does that mean yeah, and in terms of, in terms of multiplication, in terms of things computer programs currently do, yeah, they are millions of times probably more intelligent than I am, but mm-hmm. they are never going to duplicate some of those human aspects that I mentioned.
0: Yeah, where do you think is one of the best places to start with uh, framing this conversation? I think an analogy I heard one time I thought was always very interesting. It came from uh, philosopher named David Bentley Hart. He's and he argues against strong AI, and I think he'd be on the same page as is. is uh, you you are dr marks and one of the things he he said quite poetically is when we you know first started building computers we kind of used the analogy of ourselves and put it onto computers and saying well it's it's thinking it's doing all this but then we forgot that that analogy came from us and now we're taking it back from computers and reapplying it to us thinking we're just computers right? yeah, exactly. there was kind of like a, a historical confusion or misremembering that went on i and i figured that actually kind of sums up a lot of the issues in a in a funny and interesting way. And I'd be curious if you agree with that.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, um, let's see. So boil down your question again. That was yeah. a long question.
0: So I think one of the things that I've always been interested in and would want to emphasize is that, you know, the, com- the computer in and of itself, right, is, is running on logical operations. But the computer in and of itself is not in and of itself carrying out logical information operations or processing informations any more than a piece of scratch paper is right because considered by itself apart apart from our conventions our intentions it's totally meaningless right yes it's totally meaningless so there's always this sort of background that if we forget about the background we're gonna we're gonna read more into it than is actually there but it's all observer-relative, in a sense, isn't it, right? you see what I'm I'm getting at now?
1: Yeah, there's a number of uh, things you mentioned. I I have a bunch of different thoughts on that. One of them is the uh, head of the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence in in Seattle. And uh, he said, his name is uh, Oren Atziani, I believe is how you pronounce it. And he said, uh, artificial intelligence is nothing more than a pencil. In the sense that... If you look at a computer program, you are telling that computer what program what to do step by step by step, and if you had a time, it might take you a billion, two billion years to do it. You could go ahead and do all of that with uh, paper and pencil, mm-hmm. and uh, and so yeah, you're right. You're right in that sense. But as far as whether we are, <laughs> there's like well, let, let let me let me interject. There's a great there's a great story by Emo Phillips, my favorite comedian of all time. He said, I was walking one day and I realized that my brain was the most important, remarkable organ in my body. And then I realized who was telling me this. It was my brain that was telling me this, right? Uh So, so it was, um, it was a little bit of uh, a little bit of deception here. So, uh, we do have and let me change the topic a little bit. We do mm-hmm. have something called the mind-body problem, which I'm sure that you're familiar with, comes right. in the area of the philosophy of mind. Mm-hmm. And that is whether the mind is uh, something which is an outgrowth of the brain, mm-hmm. or whether the brain is, um, uh, wh- whether the brain and the mind are some way dissociated with each other, and whether whether the mind is external in some sense uh, from the brain. And this has been going on for years and years and years, and I'm sure you're familiar with some of the old uh, debates like of Descartes I think he was one of the early people that talked about uh, the mind-body problem and he referred to the mind as the soul and mm-hmm. that would, that was interesting. but uh, the question is is what you know which one you philosophically agree with what's your worldview what's your ideology and yes. if you have an ideology that we are computers made out of meat, then the only thing you can do is say AI must be able to duplicate it. After all, our brains are just computers made out of meat. So therefore we can go ahead and we can, we can simulate and duplicate the human mind with a computer. Yes. But the dualist would argue that the mind is external from the brain. There are certain things that the mind does that, uh, that, that can't be explained by the brain. I was mm-hmm. influenced. I was influenced a lot by this on this by, roger penrose he won the nobel prize a couple of years ago he wrote a great book called um the emperor's new mind yep where he convinced me that some of these human attributes such as creativity were on the ability were beyond the ability of humans to do
0: the basic beyond the ability of computers
1: yes i'm sorry beyond the the ability of computers Mm -hmm. thank you Yeah, i misspoke there um and so uh, he uh, he makes the point that back in the 1930s, Alan Turing, who was one of the founders of computer science, uh, showed that there were things that were non-algorithmic. And algorithmic is a step-by-step procedure to do something. Mm-hmm. And all computer programs, including artificial intelligence, are algorithms. If you have uh, artificial intelligence, it's an algorithm. It's a step-by-step procedure to do something. So the question in computer science was, are there things which are non-algorithmic? Are there, th- are there problems which a computer cannot solve? And Turing was the first to show the first problem that was not solvable by computers. It was, it was provably non-computable. This wasn't conjecture. This wasn't philosophical. It was a mathematical truth. Since that time, people such as Gregory Chaitin and Rice have, have generalized and shown that there's a number of different problems that can't be solved by a computer. They are non-algorithmic, mm-hmm. so this begs the question, and this is the premise of my book: mm-hmm. that are there aspects of humans which are non-computable? Because if they are non-computable, that means they're beyond the reach of they're beyond the reach of a computer. They're they're beyond yep. the reach of an algorithm.
0: Yeah. So
1: um, yes, and I think we're starting to accumulate evidence towards that. Stephen Hawking said in his book, I, I, "I love this quote." Stephen Hawking was an atheist, and he would have won the Nobel Prize with Roger Penrose. They worked together on black yep. hole sort of mm-hmm. stuff. But um, Stephen Hawking said that nothing in physics is ever proven. All you do is accumulate evidence, mm-hmm. and so that's what we're starting to do with the, with the mind-body problem. Is we're 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 beginning to accumulate evidence that indeed, um, that indeed there is or there are attributes of the human which are non-computable. And the non-computable aspect is very important because it means if it's non-computable, it can't be computed today, can't be computed tomorrow. A lot of people say, hey, hey, uh, no, it can't be. Not with algorithmic computers, not in principle. It absolutely can't. So what because it's non-computable, because computers of tomorrow will still use algorithms. They will still use something which is a step-by-step procedure. And if it's non-algorithmic today, it's non-algorithmic in the future.
0: Yeah. And that's a that's a really important point. And I would like to try and I'd, i I want to explore all those issues, in, including mind and and brain and mind, soul, and brain. I actually don't think the mind is the soul. I think that's a mistake. <laughs> but okay. that's another that's another. Issue well, I'm sure, I'm sure yeah.
1: me- meanings of words have changed over the years. Yeah. That's what Descartes referred to it as, but
0: you're right. Yep. Um, so one is like drawing lines in the sand, because I think we, we should, you know, there, there were a number of people who said certain things wouldn't happen. They did happen and they kind of had egg on their face. You know, think like chess, right? It's like, oh no, a computer will never, <laughs> never beat a human in chess or these games. And ah, no, it kind of whoops up on us now, doesn't it? Right. <laughs> or it'll never be able to, generate art right or or uh poetry or stuff like that and i don't know uh, these chatbots are getting pretty impressive so you know kind of figuring out where these boundaries are and being able to give a case for them being principal boundaries, such that if they were crossed you 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 would have to kind of put your hands up and say all right i was definitely wrong about that i think is an important thing to do Uh, and showing why those boundaries are different than say you know uh the the success in chess matches, or getting Pat Flynn's ugly mug in some sort of special outer space <laughs> rendering, or something like that. Okay. Right? You see what I'm getting at here, Doctor? I, I, I do. do. Yeah. Let,
1: let's let let's boil that down. You actually raised three topics here. Let me address them one at a time. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one is chess. Chess is algorithmic. Mm-hmm. Um, Claude Shannon, back in the 40s, came up with a technique to do the next best move in chess. You wanted to make the move which minimized the maximum damage your opponent could do. Mm -hmm. You wanted to make a move that minimized the maximum damage that you could do. And this, again, was back, I believe, in the 50s. And he actually had a very small chessboard. He wasn't able to do 64 by 64. But uh, using reinforcement learning, we know now that that can be done. So the question you have to ask about these things, are they algorithmic? Mm-hmm. Is there a set of rules which which uh, capture and define the process that you're talking about in chess? Yes, they are algorithmic. So I don't think it should be surprising that artificial intelligence has overtaken chess. Mm-hmm. I also don't think it's, uh, it, it's um, surprising that AlphaGo when it beat Lisa Dell, the world champion in Go, that that was algorithmic also. And so no, I guess I'm not surprised at those things. I don't think that computers, for example, have ever been creative. Let, let me, if I could, define creativity.
0: Yes, important. Crea-
1: creativity is uh, best defined by uh, Selmer Bringsjord at Rensselaer. He used something called the Lovelace test. Ada Lovelace was the first computer programmer of the 19th century. She she worked on a an invention which was conceived of, but never built by a, a scientist, a genius named uh, Babbage. And anyway, the Lovelace test asked the question of artificial intelligence, does the artificial intelligence do something which was beyond the intent or explanation of the programmer? Does it do something which is beyond the intent or the explanation of the computer programmer? And that is going to define creativity. And to To date, I I know of no artificial intelligence that has passed the Lovelace test for being creative. Mm. This is incredibly important because one of the things that it debunks is this idea of computer programs writing better computer programs writing better computer programs because a computer program writing a better computer program pre-assumes creativity. Mm. That better computer program has to be beyond the intent of the original programmer. In order to be creative, and there has been no um, no demonstration that that uh, that that has has indeed happened, um, and, and in fact. I don't believe it'll ever happen. I don't think the Lovelace test will will ever be I- I- ever be accomplished.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you talk about computing art and things of that sort. If we could talk about that for a second,
0: yeah, please, yeah, uh, my yeah, like my uh, hip- my face up there or the music that it's turning out now, you know.
1: Oh, exactly. But let, let's talk about let let's talk about a scenario where you want to write artificial intelligence that composes baroque music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you do? You you gather a bunch of pieces written by Bach and Handel, people of the Baroque period, mm-hmm. and you feed it in some way to the artificial intelligence. And so the artificial intelligence looks at it, it scratches its algorithmic head, and then it begins to generate music. What does that music sound like? It's Baroque, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It will never generate music that sounds like Wagner mm-hmm. or Stravinsky or jazz. Right. It will not be creative at all it is constrained to live inside of the silo of its training data. Mm, it lives mm-hmm. inside the silo of its training data. And there's there's the old saying, you have to think outside the box. Well, the training data of artificial intelligence defines the box. Mm-hmm. And in order to be creative, you have to think outside the box. And the interesting thing is that creativity normally requires you to discard things inside the box, discard the dogma. If you look back at some of the great advances in science, for example, they had to discard the dogma at the time to go forward. Um, A classic example is Einstein, Okay, used to figure that the speed of light was relative to the velocity of the observer, the relative velocity. No, the speed of light was absolute. They also used to believe that there was something in space called ether, because they knew sound waves had to travel through solids and so therefore, electromagnetic stuff had to have something that it, it traveled through and that must be, I don't know, let's call it ether. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Michelson-Morley experiment kind of debunked that. And so this—if you, if, if you asked the vast majority of scientists during Einstein's day, inside the box, about the relative velocity of light, about the existence of ether, they would have agreed with that dogma. But in order to be creative... Einstein had to step outside the box outside the box discard the dogma and do something which turned out to be creative. So I maintained that yeah artificial intelligence can generate jazz but guess what it was trained with? Jazz, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Your picture on the upper on the upper left here. Uh I think it's on
0: Here I can I actually got one right here. There's another one of me. Oh my gosh. <laughs> from, from AI, <laughs> right? Not not terrible. I mean the right eye is a little... I don't think I'm that squinty, Dr. Marksman.
1: <laughs> no. But, yeah. I, I tell you, you, you look like a superhero there. Or, or, I think that was the it, uh, package
0: it, it, I paid for. I wanted it to make me look like a superhero. <laughs> is that right?
1: Uh, you know, that's a great Christmas present. What was the name of that software again?
0: It's called Lenza. I recommend it, especially for podcasts like this. It helps you come up with little avatars and, and catchy stuff. And i uh, uh, like, how look, I'm, I'm a fan of all the cool stuff that it can do. L E N S. A, L-E-N-S-A.
1: Linza. Oh, that, that, that's a great app. Okay. Yep.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, let me talk about, you want me to talk about chatbots? Yeah, a because bit? That, okay. people chat are Puts.
0: really being impressed by these oh, new, the it's, new uh, GPT. Yeah. It, it,
1: it's incredible. And I actually purchased GPT-3 and uh, sat down and, and, and played with it for a while. It is truly remarkable. There's a few things I learned right away. Number one, it doesn't keep up with history. I asked who the president of the United States was and I said, Donald Trump. So Hmm, it's, you know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit behind the times and it gets a lot of facts wrong. Um, It it isn't a place to go for facts, but here, here's the way the GPT-3 works. You have something called syntax. Syntax is the relationship between words. If you have a word, what words kind of belong with it? And, um, and uh, they they looked at this juxtaposition of the different words, and they learn how these words flow, and they train on billions of different different articles, all in the syntax, mm-hmm. but nowhere nowhere do they talk about the semantics of what's going on. They don't talk about the meaning of what is going on, right? And what's interesting about this since gpt3 has been trained with all of wikipedia there's a number of articles in wikipedia that explain things like simple arithmetic a long division um and you know even how to take square roots there's probably articles gpt3 in reading those had no idea of the instructions it does not learn from the instructions all it does is look at the relationship between the words yeah and because of that it, it um, has totally escaped or er, er, the idea of simple arithmetic has has escaped uh, Gpt3. And I asked it for example, what was two times one one 1, one And the answer was 22. And it does get some simple arithmetic right, because I suspect that somewhere in the training data, it's seen that simple arithmetic, but it's never learned elementary arithmetic. Now, the interesting thing is I asked Alexa these same simple math problems, and you know what? Alexa got them right.
0: And you know why it got
1: them right? Because Alexa was not trained on the syntax. Mm -hmm. I think just like Google, when you ask it a math problem, it switches modes. It goes over to a math mode, uses something totally different, and answers the question. So can GPT-3 be trained to do mathematics? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But currently, it doesn't do that. Right. Another thing that uh, syntax doesn't do is learn about Mm self-reference. And um, in other words, a sentence referencing itself in some fashion. Like I asked it, does this sentence contain 10 words? Okay, so that was that, that that was something that a 6-year-old can answer does mm-hmm. this question contain six words now a a child would have got that i think uh, you know anybody that knows how to count yep. but this was difficult maybe impossible for for gpt3 to learn from syntax alone it did not learn self-referencing it did not learn elementary um, arithmetic or mm-hmm. elementary algebra even though it had all of these tutorials instructing it how to do that. It yes. had no idea what the intru- what what the meaning of those tutorials was. It was totally looking at the syntax. Yeah. But you're right. It is it is incredible and it does wonderful things. Um. I you know I don't want to diminish GPT three. It is it is an astonishing piece of software and can do can do remarkable things. But it is limited. And so the bottom the bottom line is: Does this pass the Lovelace test for creativity? Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't. It was trained on syntax. And it does stuff which is good with syntax.
0: So I want to uh, jam on a couple of themes there because you brought up uh, the notion of um, semantics or meaning. And one of the things that really shifted my thought in philosophy of mind is that, um, you know, doc- Dr. Marks, when it, when it comes to us and our thought, certainly our formal thinking, uh, we have determinate semantic content. Right. We really know yes. what we're thinking about. Right. We we understand things like triangularity and modus ponens and so on. Right. That. But if you just look well, at all, all, all in the world of Plato. Right. It's yeah. In, in, in a sense. Right. I mean, I'm go I'm I'm making a, an argument here following Aristotle and many other people that it's it's there that the intellect is actually immaterial because any material thing is particular. And it's always ambiguous into how it could be interpreted. It can approximate, but it can never be, you know, adding versus schmadding, for example. How can you know determinately what's going on? You can't from the physics of the matter. And this gets back to the background interpretive context, the observer relativity that is the human person where the physics is just, the computer is it's really meaningless without that, right? And that's, a, again, that's a very subtle but I think really powerful point it's a point about the human person, and I think is a very traditional and correct insight that there's something about us, whatever you want to call it. Other philosophers, you should just call it intellect or rationality. And it's also different from qualia. We haven't even gotten into the, into qualia yet. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, the more traditional philosophers really focused on this sort of determinate uh, semantic content that itself could not be adequately grounded at any sort of materialist conception because no physical particular thing. Has that type of quality, right? You take a triangle, it could represent anything, right? Uh, It could represent triangularity, it could represent red triangle. Uh, Philosopher Ed Fazer says it could represent the forgotten Japanese pop band triangle, for example, right? (laughs) I
1: don't don't even know what that is.
0: (laughs) Neither did I, but it's a fun one to kind of throw out there.
1: You know, I don't I, know, maybe he, you want to talk he, about that he,
0: a little bit. He,
1: yeah. he might have made that up too.
0: <laughs> yeah, it may, for, for all I know, right? Yeah. But, he, I, yeah. but since I, you brought up semantics, I just thought that'd be an important point to put out there. It's it's a subtle one, but it really pushed my thinking on this matter to say, oh yeah, that's that's really significant when it comes to these, the wider philosophical debates of what's going on here.
1: Well, you know, that, that is wonderful because we do have these ideas that exist in our brain of uh, idealic things. I was talking to a philosopher about, this incredible number, Chaitin's number. I won't go into the details, but it's an astonishing number. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Is this is this platonic?" And he said, uh, "Look, the counting numbers are platonic. Mm-hmm. You know, one, two, three, four, five. So yeah, this this would be that way." But I think it's interesting that you bring up the idea of um, of the idea the, the idea that we have these uh, concepts in our head that we can translate to something like a computer program. Right. And this mm-hmm. just goes to reinforcement that the creativity in computer programs comes from the human being. It's we derivative. are translating. Mm-hmm. We are translating our concepts into the uh, into the computer,
0: and we just um, forget that we've done that at some point, right?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I think so. I think so. <laughs> I, you know, it's uh, yeah, it reminds me of Pointland and Flatland. If you ever read that book, Pointland yes. was the yeah, it was it, it was this one little point in 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 Flatland, and
0: Edwin everything added, that right? happened. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it would happen. Oh, that that book, by the way, is my top 10. It changed my life. It was mm-hmm. really astonishing because after I read it, I thought, oh my gosh, there could be a God, maybe exist in a higher dimension. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, it was really influential on me. But uh, Pointland would sit there and everything that would happen and we'd go, oh, you know, it's so wonderful that, uh, you know, I did this, even if it was talked to externally, it had no concept of anything outside of itself. And I think that that is not exactly the case, but it's very similar to uh, AI programmers that look at computer results and they say, oh, look at what this AI did. It's just incredible. Not realizing that, no, that, that insight, that performance came from them. And the idea of creativity, and this is important to remember also is that creativity does not preclude surprising results or, um, results that you would not expect. Mm-hmm. We get, we get surprising results all the time. We get results that we, we don't expect. But the question is, is does can the computer programmer look back and say that this result was beyond the intent or the um, or, or the explanation of the computer programmer. Mm-hmm. And then you brought up qualia. This is this is another interesting interesting aspect of artificial intelligence. Qualia, I would say, well let's see if you agree it's kind of a, it's kind of a subset of sentience, right?
0: Mm, right. A uh, sort of it's often discussed as a what it is likeness.
1: What it is likeness, yes. So imagine the following scenario. You are with a man that has been void of the sense of smell and taste since birth, Mm -hmm. has no idea. And you bite into a lemon. You bite into the lemon. You feel the crunch of the lemon. You feel all of those little I don't know what they call them, those little uh, compartments exploding with lemon juice. It hits your tongue, you make this terrible face and he can see this face. Yep. And you experience a qualia, which is the taste of the lemon.
0: The what it now, is likeness of biting into that lemon, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. So the question is is can you explain or can you duplicate can you duplicate this experience in this man that has been void of, of taste and smell since birth? I maintain you can't. Mm-hmm. You can you can tell them, well, lemons, look, lemons are yellow. Okay. They're sour. You can make a face. You can even explain the biology of the taste buds, the chemicals mm-hmm. of the acidic lemon juice, all of that stuff. And that helps them understand it. But duplicating that qualia experience within that man is not possible. Mm-hmm. Now, if that isn't possible, if you can't explain to a man void of Uh, smell and taste since birth, if you can't explain to him or duplicate, I should say, duplicate that experience, how are you going to be able to duplicate it in a computer program?
0: How can you make a robot feel itchy?
1: Yes. Yes. Now, the the interesting thing is that that you can...
0: Cause it to simulate itchy behavior. Simulate
1: (laughs) simulate and mimic. They have these, uh, you know, artificial tongues, which which is just an array of sensors, which, Mm -hmm. which look at the, whatever's put on them. And they kind of get the idea of what the uh, chemical is. And you can train it when you put lemon juice on it to say, this is lemon juice. This is sour. And the Mm -hmm. computer will say, Ooh, this is sour. And this tastes like a lemon. But the question is, is in that process, did it duplicate this qualia experience that you have had and I maintain no. And I believe that the qualia aspect of sentience is beyond the capability of artificial intelligence or computer programs in general.
0: It, fall is, it falls into that sort of non-algorithmic bucket, right? Yeah.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: Mm-hmm. And you know, it's funny, I think it was, this is Thomas Nagel's example, right? You can, it's kind of a gross one, but I think it's funny. You can lick the brain of somebody experiencing the taste of chocolate and it ain't gonna taste like chocolate, right? <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've never heard that. Yeah, that's true. I might have
0: butchered it. Somebody would fact check. Philosophy of mind is not my specialty. You know, I peek into it when it becomes relevant for my other research areas. But uh, I wish my friend Jim was here, a co-host, because he is. He does focus on philosophy of mind. So he would be much more adept at this conversation. But maybe we can, we can have a follow-up with him at some point. Um, but, no, I agree with you. You know, so one of the things that really pushed me was this um, – Our formal thinking and it's, it's determinate exact, you know, conceptual content that we, that we have there that really cannot be denied how nothing physical can be like that. But now we've also focused on, you know, sometimes it's called the qualitative abyss, right? How, how could you possibly ever go from something that at bottom. It's sort of everything that a a conscious experience is not, right? You have these sort of physical bits that are are not intentional. They're not unified. They're not directed about anything. Um, There's no subjectivity there. And we think that if we can just – if we had enough time or enough ways to kind of swirl this thing together, it somehow – will like flip over into its almost perfect qualitative opposite, right? (laughs) Something that is, you know, has subjectivity, experiential states is unified, is, is directed or about things. And that seems pretty magical to me. If that, if that's like, if, if that happened, I wouldn't, I would never think that like, oh, look, physicalism is true. I would say there has to be more to physical reality than the physicalist's head, right? Otherwise, we really are just kind of pulling a rabbit out of a hat type of thing, yeah, <laughs> type of yeah. scenario, right? Like like nature has to be more like Aristotle thought of it rather than the, the modern day physicalist uh, thinks about it, if that were even even uh, possible to begin with. But a lot of people obviously think, no, that that just isn't possible. So I don't know. Any thoughts or comments on,
1: sure, uh, on that? Sure. Yeah. The... Um... The idea of a monist, a monist is somebody that believes that the brain is a meat computer. Mm -hmm. Uh, They might agree with some of the premises that we made. In fact, I met with a philosopher at um, University of Wisconsin. We were talking about my visit there, Tononi, Uh, just, just a brilliant man. And these people, you know, it can't, it can't be something spiritual. So there must be a physical explanation. Mm -hmm. So we have the physical explanation of panpsychism. Are you familiar with that?
0: Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Panpsychism is that uh, everything in the world is a little bit conscious. And so therefore you have consciousness, like my mouse here has a little bit of consciousness and um, it's just a property of nature. It's like matter and energy and other physical quantities, and they believe that um, they, they believe that our consciousness uh, comes from comes from that, which mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I find totally ridiculous. And also, there's there's no background to it. Yeah. But there's also the the belief of some that computers will get to the point someday where there will be this emergence of consciousness there will be this mm-hmm. emergence of the things that we experience right george gilder wrote a great book called gaming ai he called this the rapture of the nerds mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. that we would get to that they would get to a point where where you would have consciousness which just emerged from all of this complexity as yeah. i understand tononi's integrated information theory that's that's a belief also he talks about the the uh, a measure of the interconnectivity of different different things in in the brain and believes that once we get to a point we will have, we'll have this emergence but uh, I've done some work in emergence especially like in swarm swarm intelligence and different things and uh, been a student of the area called artificial life really interesting area and you know there has been emergence but it's nothing it's nothing that is creative it's not beyond the explanation of of the the programmer you see it and you think oh, well, you know, I programmed it this way. It did this. I wasn't expecting it to do that way, but I can certainly explain what happens. So I don't, I don't find that convincing either.
0: Yeah. And if we're going to, you know, have the term emergence uh, be meaningful, we shouldn't be able to just swap in the word magic and lose any sort of (laughs) explanatory force. (laughs) Right. Uh, And that's one of my problems with emergence in philosophy in general, philosophy of mind, you know, it's, it's this idea of, Part of what motivates panpsychism, and I think this is a good motivation, is they see that you you know emergence isn't enough if we're just using that as as a label to cover over a mystery, right? It just it just it's a label that's covering over a mystery. It's not really explaining anything. I think the panpsychist realizes, well, it's probably right that we just can't get something from nothing, right? And if if we have a physicalist worldview. It seems to be the case, right? Where we don't have the right materials on hand to get this sort of, you know, conscious subjectivity, right? So, if if we don't want to kind of, yeah, fall, you know, into magical thinking, I'm being a little bit polemical here. Maybe we gotta have that something already there, right?
1: Exactly. <laughs> and, have... and they will they they will go for miles to do that, Pat.
0: It's, yeah, um... and and I want to say I appreciate that motivation. I just don't think you have to go to panpsychism. To solve the issue. I think you do have to get rid of physicalism and you do have to get rid of materialism, but you don't have to get rid of plus, plus my issue of panpsychism, if I can rant about it a little bit is like, I don't really see how that's compatible with a uh, naturalism or physicalism anyways, because that whole worldview is supposed to come through an epistemology that is a scientism, right? That the world is sort of made up of the things that, you know, a sort of idealized completed physics and chemistry would tell us exists. And we're not getting panpsychism from that,
1: right? Well, yeah, no, it doesn't. But I, th- but I think Pat, what what it's doing is it's 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 introducing a whole new realm, and this new whole realm is the idea that this this psychism is something which is evident or re- resident in the universe, and yep. it's there just like matter and energy. So they've added a new axiom, if you will, to naturalism.
0: Yeah, and I would be, and again, I'm all I'm all fine with. Um, Coming to see that the universe is a much more special and enchanted place than many um, uh, modern naturalists think it is. I just think at that point you're just you've actually just moved away from naturalism, is what I would say yeah. at that point. And you're actually, I would actually say you're moving more in what I think is the right direction. Yeah, I think it is kind of kind of a little bit contrived to keep thinking that this is the naturalist paradigm as we've sort of. Un- Really understood it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: here, here is the uh, here is the current movement. In fact, this was, I believe, introduced by Roger Penrose. I mentioned his book, *An Emperor's New Mind*. Um, Penrose was a naturalist, and he believed that there were things that the human being did, which was beyond, which were beyond the capabilities of algorithms. Mm-hmm. And uh, I picked that up there, and I thought that was just an astonishing conclusion. And the evidence he offered was just uh, compelling, mm-hmm. but. As a naturalist he says you know there must be a naturalistic um, explanation for this okay? and that's what panpsychism is, psychism is doing it's trying to get a natural naturalistic explanation but that wasn't that wasn't Penrose's conclusion mm-hmm. he said that uh, you know i'm thinking around the universe where is there anything in the universe in physics that happens that is non algorithmic and he landed on quantum collapse when a quantum uh, quantum wave collapses to a deterministic number, he said that is beyond the capability of the description of an algorithm. So he believed that quantum ability or the quantum effect was the was the role of um, was what happened when we uh, got consciousness, and he began to work with an anesthesiologist named um, Hammerhoff. I forget what the guy's first name is, and they come up with this theory that our consciousness consciousness came from um, from quantum effects in our microtubules and our neurons and our brain. Yep. Mm-hmm. And since then, we have we have learned that quantum quantum consciousness is a big area, mm-hmm. and this is the last, I believe, unexplored frontier of the attempt of naturalists to explain consciousness. And to my knowledge, there has been no traction. Experimentally, it, everything has been presented in papers and PowerPoint slides. Yeah, and it would be nice. It would be nice to see some sort of experimental verification, other than "ooh, quantum happens." I have read papers that say quantum happens. Well, uh, yeah, but that doesn't mean that's the source of uh, quantum mechanics. I just read a paper where there was a there was a quantum interconnection between uh, particles in the brain and particles in the heart, or something like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know what that means. So. There, if it could be one of these things, which is never proven, it is so. It was so outlandish. It's so out there. It's probably it might be like string theory. It might be something which is kind of a interesting theory, but w- which has no traction in reality.
0: Yes, and again, a lot of this, you know, some of these are, you know, they, they really are beyond just AI specifically. They are wider philosophical debates and trying to parse out ontological categories. It seems like we just have. category of subjective self-awareness and intentionality and qualia and other features of consciousness that really just cannot be reduced to the other category of the physical category right yeah um and i think there's there's definitely a lot going for that and for people who are interested i've had conversations around this with many other philosophy philosophers of mind on this channel and we actually i think we did a two or part three series on panpsychism as well with dr jim people can check that out uh, critical of it overall but acknowledging some of the motivations that we think are 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 good motivations um i don't know if you want to say anything more about those things dr marks but i would like to talk a little bit more about what you think um if you saw something from ai that was creative what would that look like what would what would that have to be for you to uh, <laughs> to say oh wow this one this one this one stumped me or i guess i was wrong on this one and then i also do want to get into you know, even if we even if, you know, um, everything that 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 uh, you argue is, is correct, what concern should we still have about the power of A.I.? I mean, I just saw a post on Facebook from a professor who just had to deal with the first essay submitted submitted from a student that was A.I. generated. <laughs> and the professor was like, if I did not know about David Hume as well as I do, I would not have been suspected that something fishy was going on about this essay so there just seems to be a lot of potential negative implications of where ai could go uh even granting you know everything that you argue in your book i'd like to explore that with you a little bit i just put two things out there so please take whichever one you you like
1: okay well let's talk about artificial intelligence in general is it good or bad no it's not good or bad it's a tool and it's a tool that can be used for a number of different things um It turns out that the U.S. Patent Office and the U.S. Copyright Office will not generate or not generate a patent or a copyright or not grant a patent or a copyright uh, to anything that is generated directly by artificial intelligence. So if you generate an image, a painting, for example, that is generated directly by artificial intelligence, then that can't be uh, copyrighted. Sure. In fact, there there was just a a case in appellate court where a guy was trying to get his AI listed as one of the inventors in a patent. And mm-hmm. it was totally overturned, you know. Because yeah, so that that that's that's very interesting. Um, so let's see where was I where was I going with this? Uh, there was a guy in Colorado who used AI to generate a painting, and he um, it was at the Colorado State Fair or something, and he won first prize, and it was it was really a remarkable painting. And so the question was, was he responsible for it? Well, when he was queried about it, he said, no, I did use AI, but I used it as a tool. I went through and I got a result and I went back and I changed it a little bit. And then I went back and changed it a little bit. And he went through over 900 iterations. Mm -hmm. And this is true of any design, by the way, Um, any design of as an engineer, I know that you go through these iterations. Like, have you ever heard of Formula Four Hundred Nine? Do you know why it's named that?
0: It took that was that It took four hundred and nine attempts, right? Yeah, four hundred
1: nine attempts. Same thing with WD Forty. It took mm-hmm. forty attempts to uh, to generate it. So his art was generated uh, with nine hundred iterations. So the question is: is should he be granted a a copyright? I don't know if you can patent patents paintings, but probably not. Should he be generated a copyright as something which was uh, generated by human intellect? I maintain he should, because he used AI as a tool and an iterative tool. Mm. And when you use AI as a tool iteratively, yes, all of a sudden you can claim creativity because there's a man in the loop there. Yeah. So
0: um, okay, that answers one of my questions because one of the things I'm interested in for AI is is music. I've been a musician all my life. I play guitar and I always I record guitar tracks, but then I outsource to other musicians and producers, what I would love, and maybe it's already at this point, I haven't found it yet, is if I could just take my guitar tracks and have the AI produce everything else around it. Uh, that would actually be save me a lot of time. And uh, I I think that'd be pretty cool. But then I'd be like, well, could I really claim this is totally my own? Well, there is a man in the loop there, at least for the guitar parts, right? Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, but uh, I wasn't uh, doing the other parts myself anyway. So whether it's, you know, the people. So that's for like on the creative aspect, I'm really interested in is because on, on one thing it could, help make certain creative efforts more efficient. At the other hand, I know a lot of musicians that are very worried right now, very, very worried that uh, how are they going to be able to keep up, you know, in the in the competition if the AI, you know, is able just to crank out so much more music at some point that's just, you know, you can see where, where you know, certain I, I, yeah. artists are worried about this, right? Mm-hmm.
1: I will maintain that any music that uh, AI generates will be derivative from its training
0: data. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: So when you talk about the accompaniment, how do you want the accompaniment? Do you want the accompaniment to be in the style of a Wagner, a Bach, or a... Um, I'm just going to feed or, it all, or, the Van, or,
0: all the Van Halen she, I can, of course. Oh, Van Halen.
1: Okay. <laughs> so you see, there, there, there is a there is a predisposition. You've, you've, you've course, determined yeah. what that is. So I maintain that this is probably uh, part of the creative aspect. Here's the interesting thing about the U.S. Copyright Office. You can copyright anything. Uh, you can... Uh, we talked about this with this um, with this attorney, Richard Stevens, and you could just put a bunch of dots on a sheet of paper on musical notation, send it into the copyright office. They don't care. They don't play it. They don't do anything with it. They just they just say, okay, here's a register for the copyright. Yeah. So if you were to generate something or to try to copyright something that was generated by AI, they would they would give you a copyright. You know, mm, and mm-hmm. so the only question is what you do with it copyrights and patents are interestingly only only give you the right to sue Mm -hmm. and so it doesn't protect you it just gives you the right to sue other people that use it so um so anyway i found that i found that fascinating that yes even though we have this law that art generated directly by ai is um it's not copyrightable. Nobody's going to enforce it. Nobody has the ability to enforce it. It's it's going to be copyrighted. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, um, uh, that that you mentioned about the biggest dangers of artificial intelligence. There's there's a couple of topics we could talk about here. What what are the open problems in AI, and what are the biggest dangers? One of the biggest dangers I maintain is uh, number one, having somebody evil get in control of AI. For sure. example, like, like the Chinese using their facial recognition. I think mm-hmm. that that really inhibits the freedom of the Chinese people. I, I was so, going to
0: say issues of censorship, freedom restriction, propaganda. Uh, th- those are concerns of mine for sure. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. The other big one is unintentional consequences. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, and this gets to an area called uh, engineering design ethics. You want to design your system to do what it's supposed to do and not do anything more. And there's classic cases where that hasn't been true of AI. They designed it as best they could. And then um, when they deployed it, it did bad things. You hear about self-driving cars, for example, that killed pedestrians, mm. right? That was an unintended consequence. They, they they overlooked something in the design. And there was an Uber case, I think it was a couple of years ago now, that they, they said that the reason that it didn't respond fast enough was because there was a conflict of the software all trying to do something at the same time, mm-hmm. and it just it just didn't work and it slowed it down. Um, but interesting, the people with self-driving cars and unintended cons- consequences are in the clear. It isn't the fault of the AI. This this is also very interesting. That uh, Tesla, I think their their self-driving is called self-driving. Software is called Autopilot was involved in a number of different, a number of different, um, a number of different uh, crashes and fatal collisions, mm-hmm. and uh, in no in no place was Tesla found guilty. Why is that? Because in the engineering design, Tesla realized there might be these unintended consequences, so they told drivers you have to still pay attention. In mm-hmm. fact, if you're in these self-driving cars and you take your hands off the steering wheel for a while, it says, get your hands back on here. Mm-hmm. And so um, th- when, when that doesn't happen, it is not the AI's fault because the AI and the instruction of the AI says that you have to keep the human in the loop. Yeah. And in that Uber case where a pedestrian was killed, the driver was watching a streaming version of the voice or something like that mm. and was totally distracted from paying attention to the details. Mm-hmm. And she was instructed not to do that. She was instructed to pay attention. So unintended consequences is a big, um, is a big effort. In fact, an early example of that was the Russians. They built this, this system determined to determine whether or not the United States would do a preemptive military strike of thermonuclear weapons. I think the name of it was called OKU, O-K-U. And the Russian guy that was in charge of that had lights light up and sirens blaring and saying the United States had launched thermonuclear missiles towards Russia. And first there was one, then there was two, then there was a couple of more. And he was ordered to launch a strike back against the United States. His name was Stanislav. And if you're interested, there are YouTube videos where he is interviewed. But he said, no, he said, you know, there was something wrong. He said, if the United States was launching a preemptive strike against the Soviet Union, it wouldn't just be one or two, they would launch like 50 missiles at a time. Mm -hmm. So he informed his superiors that he didn't think they should launch. They They didn't launch. And that saved us from getting into a thermonuclear war. And that was an uh, an unintended consequence of the technology that was developed by the Russians. They later found out that the false alarms came from the sun reflecting off of clouds. Hmm. So, um, yeah, they didn't take that into account. And so, yeah, the unintended consequences, be it uh, Uber self-driving car or, you know, these thermonuclear strikes or something like that, is... um, is something very yeah very important and something that we have to pay attention to in the engineering of these artificial intelligence systems.
0: And that makes that makes sense even if we don't have to necessarily be too concerned that Skynet is going to become self-aware or something, there may very well be <laughs> certain quite still catastrophic unforeseen consequences that 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 could happen. Right. right. Uh-huh.
1: So, stuff that was, in, stuff was in, in the software and it doesn't pass the Lovelace test because in all of these cases, the designers of the AI looked at the software and it did what it was programmed to do. Oku did what it was programmed to do. Right. The Uber self-driving car did what it was programmed to do. Mm-hmm. So it still doesn't pass the Lovelace test for any sort of creativity.
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny. It reminds me of, it's been a while since I've seen it, but the old movie Blade Runner. Remember that one?
1: Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah.
0: And uh, what was the test that they tried to to give the the AI? At the I, beginning I don't of the remember, movie. remember, but I
1: remember I remember them sitting down in a room. Didn't it have something
0: leave. to do with emotion or sympathy or something like that? Which got to one of the points that you you brought up earlier, of course, right? But it it didn't seem to just be. A, I forget. I have to go. I now I'm fascinated. I want to go back and watch that movie and see like you know how many predictions do they make. <laughs> I got
1: I, I got to confess to you, Pat. I remember the movie, but I remember the questions that they asked were questions that. Uh, I I thought, I don't understand what they're trying to do. I mean, they were really, really strange. Maybe I got to go back and watch it with a little bit more depth of analysis or something.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I'm with you. It's been a while, so I'm probably misremembering as well. Okay, so we've covered a ton of territory here, Dr. Marks. It's been great, you know, focusing on, um, uh, you know, the sort of, yeah, just the different categories, ontological (laughs) categories, you know, there's certain aspects about us that really do seem to be non-algorithmic there seems like that just creates in principle barriers that ai will not be able to cross now we're not saying that it's simulation right so there's a, there's a distinction here there might be like it's like an epistemological and metaphysical difference like epistemologically for all we know it seems to be doing these things but metaphysically it's it's really not right and i i think everyone wants to admit like yeah like um an analogy i i heard a philosopher use one time is it's like it's like magic right like wow, a really good magic show really seems like something's happening, but we all know deep down, it's not what it appears to be. Right. And the analogy was drawn to, you know, AI and its power. It's like, wow, really seems to be like this, but we know deep down upon significant analysis is not actually the case. It really isn't understanding. It really isn't thinking. It isn't really, isn't being creative in the sense that, that you've said. it's, it's not here, well, um, here,
1: her Pat, I think is the bottom line. You can't judge a book by its cover. It's an old mm-hmm. saying, but you cannot judge AI by its appearance. There is this great website called this person does mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever visited it.
0: I saw it in your book, but I haven't yeah. had a chance to go to it yet. Yeah,
1: it, it, it is just fascinating because you go there and you get a picture of a person that looks so real. You hit refresh. It generates another one. Mm-hmm. And uh, in one of my talks that I I gave um, recently, I put up a picture of eight people, and I said, uh, here here are eight people, and four of them are real. Four of them have souls. Four of them have uh, hopes and dreams in life. Four of them have emotions. Four of them were loved by their mothers. The other two are just pixels, which are pushed around. Mm -hmm. Can you differentiate between them And the answer is no, you couldn't just by looking at it, just by looking at the cover of the book. In other words, you have to get deeper inside. That's the same thing with these chatbots. It's the same thing with a lot of the AI that comes out. New AI comes out and I go, wow, you know, maybe they've done something I don't understand. But after I look under the hood and find out what is happening, no, it's still still the same old sort of stuff. Not saying that it isn't remarkable, not saying that it isn't uh, astonishing and does wonderful things like generate uh, generate papers like you're like you were talking about but still it's doing exactly the way the computer programmers were telling it to do and it is yeah it's astonishing but it's doing what they told them to do there is no creativity there
0: so i would like to finish with uh your predictions you know what is what is the Landscape of artificial intelligence going to look like? How is our world going to change? Do you think over the next ten to twenty years? Is are all of your students going to start handing in plagiarized (laughs) papers, or is there there, there going to be some sunshine in here as well? You know.
1: Well, I think that um, you know stuff of the future. I think that there's kind of ongoing problems. One of the things is that uh, uh, artificial intelligence currently has no um, no common sense. Uh, there's a story of Fred Flintstone and he got his fingers glued in a bowling ball and he asked Barney to go out and get a hammer and Barney went out and got a hammer cause they couldn't get his Fred's fingers out. And Barney came back and Fred said, okay, when I nod my head, hit it. Mm-hmm. When I nod my head, hit it. So um, clearly he was referring to the bowling ball, but that vague pronoun was in there and there's all sorts of common sense problems that really are not solvable yet. I believe that they, they can be solved in a very strange way, and some of the places they are solved by GPT three, mm-hmm. because GPT three has seen these flubbed, flubbed headlines and ambiguous things, and uh, and figures it out from the context and the syntax of things that has looked at before. But I think this is a big area of artificial intelligence. One of the interesting things about creativity is that humans experience creativity and what is referred to as flashes of genius. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you can forecast what artificial intelligence is going to do. I've seen in my career, AI kind of goes along and then boom, there's a there's a great flash of genius that somebody has. There was back in the 90s, something called Arabic propagation. Oh, that's really cool. And then in the last few years, there have been generative adversarial neural networks that generate things such as, well, it's used in GPT-3. It's used in... Uh, It's used in this person does not Mm exist.com and they have, they have come up and you look at them and that you go, wow, this is creative. You know, I had no, I, um, I have no idea where this came from, but it really, really works well. Deep learning, convolutional neural networks is another one. So there's going to be stuff that comes on in the future, but interestingly, it's not forecastable Mm -hmm. because it does take that creative genius and artificial intelligence to go to the next, if I could use the use the word, a quantum step.
0: Yeah, you certainly can. And I'm glad you did, Dr. Mark. So how about you personally? What uh projects are you working on? Uh Anything coming, coming down the uh, pipeline? And then of course, let's make sure we mention your book again. Oh, yes. Non-Computable You and where people can get all that and all that good stuff.
1: Yeah, Non-Computable You is available like everything else in the world on amazon.com. Indeed. And it's available in Kindle, print, or audio. And I wrote the book, so it can be... It can be understood in audio, mm-hmm. uh, so that's that's the good point. All of my other books have equations in it, and I don't know if you've ever listened to an equation being explained in audio. Not the no most it's,
0: exciting, yeah. Oh,
1: it's it's terrible. It's terrible. So anyway, Amazon.com, uh, non-computable. You, what you do, artificial intelligence never will. And it unpacks some of the ideas we've talked about and uh, some additional ideas that AI, for example, will never understand what it's doing. The project that I'm working on now with uh, two guys, Brian Krauss and somebody you might know, Angus hmm. Um, he, he's a philosopher um, at Concordia University. He's chairman of the department there. But we're putting together, we're editing a book on the mind-body problem from mm. different aspects, and we're looking at the at the mind-body problem from different directions from scientists, to, uh, computer scientists, philosophers, psychologists, um, and so we have a number of different perspectives on that, and that should be coming out later in twenty twenty
0: three. So oh well, great! Yep, I will keep yeah. an eye out for that and have to bug you and maybe some of your. Uh, the other contributors come back on and talk about that at some point okay i tell you it's
1: just i've learned so much and one of the things about being professor you're supposed to re-earn your phd like every seven to ten years so Mm -hmm. i'm re-earning my phd right now learning about all this philosophical stuff it's
0: really oh well well, god bless you and you're putting it to good use with your obviously your background in computer science where you yeah you need to kind of be conversant with with these things because you know you you often sometimes have the philosophers who um you know, have a lot to say on philosophy of mind, but they're just really not conversant with, you know, um, modern AI technology and stuff like that. And, yeah. A, lo- uh, so- a lot of them
1: I have a hard time talking to. It's just a different world, but yeah. we finally get on a common denominator. So that's
0: good. Yeah. Now, do you have a website or homepage that people can, or some other place people can Yes. With you in at? fact,
1: I'm, I'm the director of the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence. It's one of the arms of Discovery Institute. Mm. Discovery Institute has a number of different uh, centers, and the Bradley Center is one of them. The Bradley Center is, as the name says, deals with um, artificial and natural intelligence. So therefore, artificial intelligence enters into it. That's, you know, my specialty. We have people writing at our website on different aspects, and these, these are not uh, journalists. We do have some kind of journalist types, but we also have... Uh, brain surgeons like Michael Ignor. We have lawyers such as Richard Stevens. We have psychologists and computer scientists such as Dr. Eric Holloway and uh, Jonathan Bartlett, writing on writing on different aspects. And it it, it deals a lot with the uh, natural and artificial intelligence in the latest news. And it adopts my philosophy that humans still are fearfully and wonderfully made. That we are uh, we we are exceptional, exceptional creations. And it turns out that the evidence is really flowing in, but the website for that is mindmatters.ai mindmatters.ai that the politicians say, you have to mention your website three times. So let me, That's do right. the <laughs> okay. uh, mindmatters.ai
0: and I'll make it easier. Cause I'm going to, I'll link that and your book in the show notes. And I'm going to encourage everybody to pick up a copy. It's a great book. You know, it treats some deep topics, but it's really well-written Uh, very accessible, entertaining as well. Great voice. So highly recommend people grab a copy of that. Check out your website. Dr. Marks. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Pat enjoyed it. God bless.